I mean, when we stop to think about the human race as in they're only human, as in they're incapable in some way, we start to think about the human race regardless of culture, regardless of colour, regardless of sex, shape, size, it's irrelevant. What is relevant? Together, we can do so much more. Rain Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Unleash Your Supernova. I am your host, Nova Lorraine, and super excited about our most recent award nomination by the People's Choice Podcast Awards. And I am here with a dear friend and amazing colleague, Lee Tunnyware. And we are going to be talking about leadership, but in the aspect of finding the best way to find solutions as leaders. But before we dive into that, a little more about the show. If you're just joining us for the first time, this is all about storytelling. It's all about reaching out to incredible entrepreneurs from around the globe so they can share their words of wisdom, their tips, their secrets, and how they're unleashing their superpowers. We talk to creatives, artists, writers, directors, filmmakers, entrepreneurs, techies, you name it, those that are doing unconventional and creative things in their lives and how they're accomplishing their dreams. So without further ado, welcome, Lee. Thank you, Nova. How are you? I am good. I'm good. And before we dive into the show, I'm just going to share some more information about your background to our listeners. Lee Tunnyware runs Transform Coaching and Consultancy Services. He is a business and life coach with more than 30 years experience. His approach is deep, bespoke coaching with exponential results. Lee is an expert at taking high achievers to great levels of success. He is a lifelong student of the mind and human behavior, offering a unique remote solution to suit individuals who are committed to their own success. His passion is coaching business professionals who need to get big results in less time, helping them make teeny changes that elicit huge results. All right. Now that we have a little bit of info, I know we're going to dive into more. I'm just really excited to talk to you today, especially about leadership. And I feel as if you're an artist or a mom or an entrepreneur, there's some point in your life where you have to step into a space of leadership. You have to guide, you have to teach, you have to problem solve. And so I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to hear your insights and what you can share with our listeners. So how are you today? Oh, I'm very good. And that's uh, leadership's a big question, isn't it? So, and there's so many different perspectives on it. So how do you get yeah. the best from another human being in a collaborative, symbiotic, holistic way where you're not manipulating, persuading, controlling, and even possibly leading? That's true. Logically speaking, in my world, are you the leader of sheep? Yeah, which is how some people refer to it, like you're their shepherd. Right. Or are you the leader of leaders? Do you inspire and create leaders? Which means mm. you're not really leading, you're possibly leading the way to enable them to be more driven, more passionate, but not persuasive. So if you went back to, say, Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Churchill, would they be considered leaders? Hmm. That is, you know what? That's a very good question. I mean, my immediate reaction is yes, but they're not leaders in 
the traditional sense. And that takes me back to the initial question that I want to ask you is how have you learned how to unleash this inner greatness that you have to be able to get to a point where you could even lead leaders? So how are you unleashing your supernova? Good question. And this is the thing, I suppose, with your, everything you say is from your skin, like, as in from your skin out is in the real world. So when you speak, that now you become the stimulus for another human. How it crosses the threshold of their skin, the effects, positive or negative, it has. What comfort zones it creates, what opinions, what beliefs, does, what you say create in them. And how do you know how to judge another human to determine whether they're a leader or not a leader? Bear in mind, we're all supposedly created equal. Some seem to be more equal than others. And then we talk about ourselves like we're the human race, as if we're in a race. We're competing in life. That's what success really is. In a sense, we're fighting our way up this ladder while some beat us down. So in many ways, when we win, when we succeed, we become the negative for somebody else based on the rules of business we have. I mean, if you're in a race of 100 people and you win, then you become the negative for the 99 behind you. That's the problem with the competitive world. Well, just imagine it was a style of leadership without competitiveness. Mm. A style of leadership that was from honor, from integrity, from sincerity. And that's where it comes back to say, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, or Churchill. It was a common goal. What is a common goal? There's unity. And the best person is chosen, not because of their ability, possibly, not because of their, they've got the strongest voice, because they've got the honor and integrity to think beyond themselves and to think of everybody holistically at the same time, where they don't put a price or a value on another human. And to me, that's true leadership. Yeah, no, I want to, I just want to interject a little bit and tie that back to you. Like, how did you get to a point where you're even seeing leadership in this way? Because it's, you know, unique from a lot of opinions, you know, in terms of leadership or how you lead. So how did you personally get to this point where you can share your viewpoint of leadership, this unique viewpoint? That's a good question. Going back a lot of years, though, till I was probably eight and a half. I got my brother's partially sighted, has 5% sight in one eye, 10% in the other. When he was born, he was read to the last rites, and they basically said he'd never read a right account to 10. They never expected him to survive, and he did survive. And he went to a special needs school. And I remember one of my earliest memories walking to the bus with my mum to put him on the bus to go to a special needs school. And after a few weeks or months of going there, bear in mind I was only, he's three years older than me, so I was probably three or four years of age going to the bus with my mum. So I, I don't know how to time what happens next, but I remember my mother saying to my father that basically the school wasn't helping him, it was getting worse. And my father said, it was the first time I heard my father's voice, what some might say being weak. He said, I know. And then he stormed into, into another room and slammed the door. And when he did, two panes of glass cracked it. So it was quite an impactful experience. But the next day, my father, my father was self-employed. He didn't go to work. And Bobby didn't go to a special needs school. And he sat Bobby on the couch and said to Bobby, one plus one 
is two, Bobby. What's one plus one? And Bobby never answered it. And my father must have said the same question a thousand times. And then my brother went, one plus one is two, Dad. He said, and two plus two, Bobby? Well, we just looked at him blankly. And he said, two plus two is four, Bobby. Over and over again for weeks he'd done this. Then my brother can add up quicker than the calculator mm. to this day. Now, I can add up really quick. 1154 is 594, 1512 is 180. It's just a system in my mind. But when I started to go to school, Bobby went to the same school as me. Now, we went to school in Southern Ireland, and not my accent and Bobby's accent wasn't the best accent probably to have at the times of the troubles in Ireland because we were seen as English, even though we have Irish breeding. And Bobby being partially sighted, ginger hair, a little bit slow, not as quick on the uptake as everybody else, he got severely bullied. The teachers basically, bear in mind the leaders, the teachers told the children, the ones that set the example for the children, how to treat us. And we were told, or they, the, the, the kids in the playground were told to incorporate us in their games. Well, some of the kids at school thought it'd be funny to put Bobby in goal, a partially sighted kid, and kick balls at him. So, of course, he was taking part in the game, but basically it was just target practice. Now, bear in mind, we went to school, this age started, it was a mixed class, so it started at seven years old up to 14. At 14, you left the school and went to what they called the Christian Brothers. I was about eight and a half. Bobby would have been nine and a half, ten and a half, eleven and a half thereabouts, eleven, eleven and a half years old. And there was kids there that, well, some of the bigger kids, the 13 or 14 year olds, were once kicking the ball, twice my size. So you feel disempowered, there's nothing you can do. You talk to the teacher, you talk to your parents, they do their best, but nothing changes. Just becomes, I don't know, more hidden in the shadows, ninja stuff. So what do you do when you've done everything you can do and nothing's changing? What do you do when you know it's not right? And it's not just you know it in your left brain. It doesn't seem right in your right brain. You can't imagine any good that will come of it. it doesn't feel right in your heart and, don't, and your spirit just feels exhausted. But you feel so disempowered. So how do you make a decision from that place? When you know what's right rather than most people choose, let's say, between right and wrong. It's not right or wrong, it's what is right. And there's a big difference in, as in because of opinions and beliefs can change what's right or wrong. Some people can say one religion's better than another or so forth. So it's not, it's where we choose from. But when, when we know the center of what is right, what is honorable. So there was a, an experience in my life where eight and a half years old stood up to my teacher after getting three of the best because my brother had been picked on, and she said, that would teach you. And I said, would you like to give me one more for luck, miss? So she <laughs> did. And when she did, I took the cane out of her hand, pulled it out of her hand, and said, that'd be the last time you hit me, miss. I said, Bobby, get your satchel, we're leaving. And she told me we weren't. But I didn't recognize her authority, because I didn't recognize her as a leader. I didn't recognize her as honorable, credible. I didn't recognize her as my protector or my brothers. Mm. So... When you're in that place, what do you do? Do you just accept that this is going to be the reality or do you change the reality? And I mean, at eight and a half, what can you do? Long story yeah. short, we came out of the school and it was right by the sea. And when we came out of the school, the tide was in. And so the road was flooded to get 
round to where we needed to go, we had to walk through the tide. So basically, we were like two soldiers in the water with our satchels above our head. My brother was a bit taller than me, so it was only probably just above his belly button at chest heights for him. For me, I had to hold my head above the water to get through it. And new shoes that week, my mother had bought us brand new black leather shoes. And when we got back to the house, our clothes were ringing. Only thing dry was our satchel. And mm. the shoes, when they dried, turned white from the salt. And my mum went mad. And she said, you wait till your father gets home. That's the leader of our family, the father, see. Mm-hmm. And that dad was the threat. He was the big stick. If you, if you, mum couldn't deal with you, dad was the next one that was brought into line. That's the hierarchy form of leadership. So my dad came. We were marched downstairs. Obviously, Bobby said, well, I left school because Lee told me to. My father told me that I was going back to school the next day. The teacher had already been to the house, and he told me I was going back to apologise to the teacher in front of the class. And I said I wasn't. And as I said that to him, he undone his belt buckle. That's how we were taught in the old days, that the mind wouldn't succumb. The body was taught. To mm. make, the body was the instrument that made the mind like change. When we want to right. change somebody's mind, I mean, how do you do it? Do you take things away from them? Do you punish them? Do you put them on the naughty step or do you beat them? I grew up in a time where the cane or the belt was a tool that made you fall in line. My dad undone his buckle. And he said, you can go. He said, or I can make you go. I said, God couldn't make me go. Wow. And he said, what? I said, God couldn't make me go. Now... At that moment, I'd already realized that if I could out-leverage, out-maneuver, out-lead my father, then who's next? Is it the priest? Is it the Pope? Is it God? Who are they going to use? My mother, the teacher, told me she would tell my parents. My parents, my first one that spoke to me was my mother. My mother was disgraced Mm. with me. Mm. And then the next line of defense was the father. And then after that, who is it? Is it going to be like priests? I don't know who's next, the headmaster. So I worked out in my mind that the one above all was God. And if God couldn't make me go, I wasn't going. I said, you can drag me there. You can do whatever you want to me. I will not go. And if you do get me there, I will leave at the first opportunity I get. So we never returned to that school where we were taught at home. Mm. few variables to that was my brother three years older than me. I became the older brother because I was sighted. So I always learned at an early age to look out for him. So I suppose in many ways became very empathetic to his needs. So at an early age, I I learned automatically, symbiotically, to think beyond myself, to feel beyond myself. Mm. When you have, uh, bear in mind, I don't think there was anything I learned. Nowadays, I can put that into a language, I can put that into a system, but in those days, it was something that was written on my consciousness and my biology and my spirit. So I was always looking out for him. The challenge was that by looking out for him, I was actually, even though in some ways became his protector, but also became his jailer, because he never got to experience some of the things he should have experienced. I was his protector against bullies. I shouldn't have been his protector against some of the experiences he'd have experienced. That's the problem with the leadership, is that when we lead to a point that we're trying to protect and serve, do we take away the ability of the experiences that sometimes we need? Do we cocoon that person in bubble wrap to the point that they're no longer that person? 
that they feel incompetent. So that that's the problem with sometimes the leadership we have is we have to, in some way, protect at the same way, allow them to experience. And this is where I would say it comes to what avatar do you have installed in your mind for the person you're going to lead? Because all we're trying to do is navigate them through the future. If we imagine the wrong future for them, or they imagine the wrong future for themselves, and we buy into that drama, or we make that their armor, that we've got the obstacles we've got to get over, the things we've got to fight through, there is no fight. There is no obstacle. Yeah. I, I just find your story so fascinating. It's so unique. You are the younger brother to a sibling who can't see and has learning disabilities and having to defend him. But then at such a young age of eight or eight and a half, being aware that the leaders, quote unquote, that were placed in your life to protect you were not able to do that and deciding to take your destiny into your own hands where you decide to lead yourself basically at eight or eight and a half. And that's just a powerful Oh, experience, journey, story, however you want to describe it. But I can absolutely see how your perspective has led you to connect the dots around the original concept you shared with us regarding Martin Luther King and Gandhi. And are they leaders? You know, just asking that question and seeing how that ties into your own childhood and how you had to learn about leadership in this through this very unique way. So that I just, I'm still just <laughs> stunned at, at the story. Thank you so much for sharing that. It took a it's, long it's time. Amazing. The first time no, I no. shared, the first time I shared that story I was asked to do a talk for Mindspace. Mindspace is sort of in Ireland would be a society that looks out for, I suppose, teenagers that could go off the rails or teenagers that have gone off the rails. And it's okay. a very, yeah, so some would have learning disabilities, some would have different challenges in their life or within their their family structure. So I was asked, because a lot of people would know I have dyslexia and it, I still can't read or write to this day properly. So, but I've been very successful. So a lot of people locally that know me are quite open about it. So I was asked to speak to them because some of the people in my space would have a learning disability. And I suppose it was the show, and it was the showcase that, in a sense, well, even with a learning disability, even with different challenges in your life, even growing up with an accent like this in the west of Ireland, you could still be successful. But it depends what drama you buy into, and that comes back to if you look at Gandhi's style of leadership or Martin Luther King's. Logically, with Martin Luther King done, say that I have a dream. Bear in mind the language: I have a dream. I have a future that I imagine that you don't. I have a reality that you have imagined. That I imagine that you don't, that you can't comprehend. But I can't say it to you in direct language because if I do, I'm seen as a threat. I'm heard as a narrative rather than... And he wasn't looking to lead, so he was just looking to change. Wasn't didn't want followers, just wanted a different outcome. Didn't want followers, just wanted honour, integrity, equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, same as Gandhi. Gandhi didn't want... I mean, what did he want? He never thought, and this is the point about those two leadership. Now, when we're under threat, say, with the World War, like with Churchill, different style of leadership, because in a sense, everything's pushing against you, saying you can't win, and they're saying, well, we're never a surrender. 
and like it's those types of but to be able to speak from that honor and that integrity even like the words i have a dream just imagine it. i have a plan i have a seven step formula let me show you my powerpoint presentation no he never said that <laughs> and, that and that's the point nowadays we think communication is like words or Images. They talk about multi-sensory sensory presentation of NLP, which is brilliant. I've done a lot of study in NLP. But multi-sensory presentation for what purpose? Is it to get your agenda across to them so they buy into what you're saying so you are the leader? Or to make change that's beneficial to all? Because that's the difference in the leadership of Gandhi and Martin Luther King. They weren't looking to lead. Yeah, no, no, that's a good point, you know, in terms of leadership. So they became leaders, but they weren't necessarily looking to lead. I want to go back to the the point you made around as a leader and protecting those that you're leading. And are you doing them a disservice and setting them up for failure in the long term by not allowing them to have the experiences they're meant to have, even if those experiences are painful. So I would like you to, let's bring that, we, we heard the story with your brother and yourself and how you had to protect him at a young age and did that serve to his good, higher good or not. But I would love for you to bring, share with us an example that a leader can look to now to say, okay, Am I doing this as a disservice to my team or not? What's an example that you can give us as it relates to not protecting your team to the point where they're setting themselves up for failure? Good question. Now to find a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> is a good example when like something has life and meaning rather than waffle. In many ways, I suppose, even some top leaders would say, but the stories we tell ourselves, but then we're also, as a culture or a local like community or national, we're the stories we believe about ourselves. So most of us in the story sometimes are going from victim to hero, and or we, like, we need resilience to succeed. So obviously, if we need resilience to succeed, then logically speaking, the general narrative is there's some sort of form of villain or kryptonite in our future. And a lot of people talk about manifestation, law of attraction. They don't talk about demanifestation. And to my knowledge, I'm the only person to mention it. The reason I say it, I'm not saying that from an ego perspective, is most times we're not looking to change ourselves. We're looking to change the preemptive future we imagine. Now, that's an individual future. I have, I expect X to happen. I believe X will happen. That's an individual. When we go into leadership, we go beyond the I, beyond the individual to the we and the us. And depending on the size of the community, whether that be a family unit, whether that be a corporate client, we could be leading one, like from one to three or four. We could be leading one to three or four thousand. We could be a politician. Is when we're leading, if we're always leading to change the drama and we're always saying well I know you don't want this but I'll give you that then are we really leading or are we just trading and that I mean nowadays with all the surveys and social media I mean there's so much demographics psychographics how they overlay and how they overlay to certain minorities and communities they've took the tribe 
and like the tribe is like a pizza and then they've sliced it up into all these individual slices some big some small then they look at the individual slice and they think well if i can communicate to that slice that slice is 52 percent if i can get that slice and then i get the leader of these slices the influencers so they're leading for their own outcome they're not leading for the tribe's outcome that's whether that's politicians or whether that's the CEO sometimes. If you're not leading from the right space, the right ethos, then you're already, in many ways, all you're looking to do is influence and persuade. To me, that is a leadership, that's influence and persuasion. So how you get to the depth of honor and integrity is that every part of your resistance should know it's right. You cannot have your eye on the negative future or the negative reality because if you allow the negative future and negative reality to control your thinking and how you feel, then you're not you're being led, you're being controlled. So how can you lead? Mm, interesting. To demanifest that reality and not get caught up in the trauma or the drama, even though all the experiences are there, it's only human beings with beliefs creating experiences from beliefs that creates the reality we're in. The common narrative, as in what we commonly agree on, the problems, how we divide that pizza, and we say, this is our problem, and if you solve that, you can lead us. But if we, if we don't agree to solve that problem, then they won't choose us to lead. But if people know you're the person to solve that problem, and that you truly have their future, their future in your sights, not your future in this like you're not telling like so i'm not convincing you to vote for me or i'm not convincing you i should be the ceo of a company because i want the status or the fancy car or the big paycheck can't put a price on leadership see if you're truly a leader honorable leader i mean how much did martin luther king get paid for that speech how much did gandhi get paid just like to literally go on hunger strike how much did he get paid? What title did they give him? And that's the difference. So how do you take that into the business world? And it comes down to honor and integrity and having somebody else's, not just an individual's future, not just your family's future in your sites. You gotta have your employees and their families and their grandkids, if you want a legacy future, You've got to have everybody's future in their sites. Because as long as you can serve and protect with an ethos that allows the, the human being to be a human being, and you're not just shouting orders, that isn't leadership. That's just admiral-type leadership. If you can empathetically connect and deliver, not just the words, the words are only the message, like, that, that, like we perceive on the surface, the words of the message, but they're the vessel that carries the message. They're the envelope that delivers the letter. And the letter is the empathy. Every part of your existence truly wants them to be safe, their family to be safe, and for them to have a future beyond, beyond what's generally default, imagined and agreed, because that's leadership. If you can go beyond what people expect and what people believe, like Martin Luther King did or Gandhi did, they done the impossible, which means everybody else believed it was impossible. Yeah, let me jump in because I think there was a lot that was covered there. <laughs> a lot of really, Sorry. really good. 
No, it's good. I'm I'm digesting it all and I just want to unpack it a little bit. So one of the things that jumped out at me was the word demanifestation. Then I thought that was really interesting when you brought that up that a lot of people talk about talk about manifesting but they don't talk about demanifestation and how if you are looking at the negative outcome to give you the solution to the problem then that's not true leadership. So can you just break that down a little bit? Well, they're not something to say you're communicating to say I can't see it. I can't imagine that. In my world they're speaking from their right brain, their creative side. But they're speaking from the place of a little child sitting in a box pretending they're driving a car. That's playful imagination. That's not manifestation. That's not creative imagination. That's where imagination is controlled somewhat by consciousness. So you're thinking within your thinking. So you can't allow your thinking to get in the way of your thinking. You can't allow your thinking to get in the way of your decisions. It's a bit like how people talk to themselves. I mean, how, how do you do that? I don't know how to talk to myself. I'm one entity, one, one being. How can I talk to myself? So to understand that, in a sense, that conscious chatter is just information competing. But we're in two minds. It doesn't mean we've got two minds. It means we've got two pieces of data to the same value. If you've got two pieces of data to the same value, then you've got no data at all. All you've got is drama, conflict. So logically, those two pieces of data aren't worth anything. Thoughts are like snowflakes. And a lot of people then, they say, well, I won't make my decisions from my consciousness. I make them from my heart. And then you ask, well, so you make all your decisions from your heart, yeah. So you always get them right. Oh, no, I never get them right. All right. But it's amazing how many people think they've got the right decision made and it turns out to be the wrong one. You can't make decisions from your heart. You can't make decisions from consciousness. You can't make them from your imagination. Even your spirit, if you go in and meditate. But if you go into that meditation with drama or trauma, then you're allowing, you've already corrupted your meditation. All you're really doing is meditating to medicate. You believe it's your higher self. But, I mean, it's only a belief that you believe it's your higher self. I mean, when you, that, that's a, then you could make it from, does it feel comfortable with you from your gut, your biology, reptilian brain, fight or flight or freeze? Because where do you make your decisions from? But when you make your decisions from your left brain, that's your thinking mind, your right brain, your creative, imaginative mind, so in a sense, your whole mind, the head-top computer's working, but not within the drama, not within the thoughts, not within the beliefs or the opinions. And then you make them from your heart, but heart aligned with mind and heart and mind aligned with guts and aligned with spirit. When you are aligned, mind, body, heart and spirit, every part of your existence will line up, then you're in flow. Cannot ever allow the outside world to dictate to you on the inside. Cannot allow fear to make your decisions for you. Cannot allow compromise to make your decisions for you. Cannot allow money to make your decisions for you. You have to make the right decision. Once you've done that, then really, and that might sound complicated, it's quite easy to do, but the next stage is then you're going to need to communicate that with the language of intention where the fabric of your language is felt and heard and understood on all levels, mind, heart, spirit, and biology. So you're not a threat, but it makes sense. They can see it. So just to clarify, when we're making decisions and we're problem-solving, 
as leaders, and we all, as you mentioned, at some point in our life, we're going to lead someone. It could be one, three, three thousand people or more that we can't allow our belief systems and or trauma, um, which yeah. you mentioned, conflict, money, influence, status, to be at the root of that problem because that means you are just replacing one or trading as you mentioned you're just trading yeah. one problem for another because that solution isn't coming from a truly aligned place and when you're in alignment then you are i'm going to go back a little bit i'm trying for to sure. connect the dots you are working through honor and integrity you are concerned with the individuals you're serving and not just them but their legacy their children their children's children and your whole being feels good about that decision your mind body soul spirit physical body feels good about that decision and going back to my question about manifestation versus demanifestation if there's a trauma or conflict for example I'm going to use those two yeah. that is at the forefront of your mind and that's driving the solution then you're only you're creating a solution for a future problem so you're almost creating the problem you got it. in your mind to and so you're just continuously feeding this new problem this new problem that you're imagining before it even comes to pass as opposed to clearing your mind starting from that neutral place of honor and integrity and true compassion and empathy so that was my interpretation of what that's you shared right. that's very good you cannot allow the reality to dictate the outcome because all you're going to get is the calibrated outcome anyway somebody's going to change what reality is in some way some leader's going to step into the the breach and come up with the new concept if the new concept is only an upgrade of the old concept, have you got a new concept at all? I have a question. So you had said obviously our traditional marketing methods which you broke down with the pizza example and the slices yeah. and the and the influencers of the various slices and marketing now to those influencers due to social media. So if you aren't starting with the traditional means of how data is collected, why it's collected and what it's used for. So for example, people in Minnesota, which is a state here in the US, people in Minnesota need more red shoes according to the data. Therefore, they don't have enough red shoes. I am going to design red shoes and sell them to people in Minnesota as a leader of this new brand. Are you saying yeah. that's the wrong way to go about that? Well, yes and no, but it depends if we're leading for business and we want to be a brand leader of a specific, say, red shoes, then there's loads of ways to influence. Yeah, But if the need's there, then you're fulfilling a need, then it's a bit like selling water in the Sahara Desert. I mean, mm, right. how much could you get for a bottle there? But imagine you're in the Sahara Desert. Now, obviously, it comes back to profits, what's driving your leadership. It depends if we're talking about business leadership, leading in a market, or leadership as in in the community. If you're in the Sahara Desert and you, you, you've got, I don't know, a million pound or dollars in your pocket, and you walk up to me and I'm selling water, how much would you pay for a bottle of water and you haven't drunk in the last 
I don't know, say three, four days, and you're literally, your mouth's dry, your lips are cracking up, how much would you pay for a bottle of water? I guess it's <laughs> as much money as I have in my pocket at the time, like here, because it's all about survival at that point, it's life or you death, right? So if I was to sell you that bottle of water, would I be taking advantage of you? Would I be fulfilling a need? I'm fulfilling the need, you're happy to pay any price up to what you've got in your pocket. Imagine if I was to give you that at cost or at a small profit. What would you think of me then? I would respect you. <laughs> I would feel good. I would see you as... Uh, would you trust me? I would trust you, yeah. Would you believe in me? I would. Because I never took advantage of you. Hmm, right. That's true leadership. I cannot mm. take from you so I can have my success because that isn't leadership. That's consumption. That means I consume your life to, for me to fulfill mine. That to me is not leadership. If I serve, then yes, I've got, I can't be a loss for helping you. But sometimes it's like the word help. You can't get paid for help. So you can get paid for support. Help if somebody shouts out in the street, help me, I've fallen. And you run over your business card and say, well, look, I can help you up for $100. What would you think of that person? <laughs> so it, it's down to honor and integrity. I mean, the choices we make are the choices we make, but the choices we make are the character we are. Yeah, no, I get that example, and that was great. I'm going to sort of sum up the, the some of the takeaways I heard. One, as a leader, you may not or should not protect your team from the stumbles that they, they personally need to experience because they you're there to create future leaders. And if they don't, they're not able to protect themselves because they didn't feel what it felt like to fall down because you were always there to catch them and they don't know now how to adjust on the way down or how to protect themselves in the future, they're not being trained to be leaders in the future. So that was one thing I took away. The other thing is demanifestation versus manifestation. That if we keep a problem or trauma or drama, the reality that the problem that's in front of us as the reality in front of us as the driver for the solution, then we're creating this future that includes this problem and Therefore, we have to allow ourselves to be inspired by solutions and ideas from a place that doesn't have that problem at the forefront. And then the third takeaway is integrity, trust. And if you're in the position to serve, to not take advantage of that position with profit. And in return, the individual that you're serving is going to trust you, come back to you for that service, for that product, because they realize that although you had the opportunity to possibly make more profit because the need was great, you didn't take advantage of that position or that place. And that allows them to build that trust with you. So that's that shows that also shows integrity. So those are I know there was a lot that was covered. Mm. Those are three things that jump out at me. Did I get any of them? Was, was yeah, am I on the right track? Oh no, perfect. And just I suppose the clarity bit is: Do you let them make the mistake, or do you 
See, when we preempt what's coming, strategy and systems in the business are a, a different narrative to say community leadership or leadership on a football pitch or in an army, different leadership. Because when we, we've got the data, we still need the data to analyze. Uh, if you're a chess player, yeah, so how can mm -hmm. I? So, for example, every book that will ever be written is in one book, the dictionary. It's not the words, it's how those words, bear in mind the words we speak, as in, if I was to commit a crime, I'd be took before a judge. Yeah, I'd be arrested, took before a judge, and the judge would hear the evidence, the data, make a judgment, and then issue a sentence. And that mm -hmm. sentence could be a fine, or it could be imprisonment, or it could be community service. The word sentence, you can be given a sentence by a judge, or you can speak a sentence. The sentences we speak come from the judgments we make of the individuals we lead and our perception of reality. If we allow the reality to dictate or the way the human being shows up to dictate, then all we're doing is training either the individual to be better than they are. At some point, I mean, the problem is with training. Training is information that's passed from one human to another. In, mm -hmm. in, in intuition, let's say, if you take mm -hmm. intuition, and you communicate that. When you communicate intuition, it becomes tuition, which means it becomes learning. If the other person clones what you're saying to them, all they become is a, a clone of you. There's no authenticity or honor in that. And that's the problem with training or education. Nothing wrong with education, nothing wrong with training. However, you have to, in my opinion, allow the human that you're training or educating to write that on their biology, on their spirit, in their language, in their representation, from their future, they want to change. Because if not, all they are is clones of you. So you, right. you, even though you don't want them to get hurt or make the mistake, or you don't want to deliberately lead them into the darkness so they can find the light, what you want to be able to do, it's a bit like, say, Martin Luther King, one of the last speeches he'd done was, is, I think it was, I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen the promised land. Very visual language that you're either telling or showing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was he saying? How do you think it was felt? How was it internalized? I may not get there with you. Because that's the thing. See, if we're a leader and we pick them up and we take them to that place, they have mm -hmm. no accomplishment. They just thank wow. you. Mm -hmm. Many leaders try to pick them up and carry them or they have their avatar and they speak about well, John needs to improve himself. But John might need recognition. John might need, like, somebody to release him from a sentence that was spoken to him. Mm -hmm. Because right. when we put these individual words together and we make these sentences, the judgments we make are the sentences that we impose on others. And we always speak from our judgment. When we speak from honor and integrity and we realize that some say no human being is perfect, we're only human. I mean, there's two beliefs that are dominant beliefs in our society. We're only human and nobody's perfect. We're either imperfect because we're imperfect to God, but God made a sinner in his or her image. Or we're imperfect because we come from the beast and we've evolved from an ape. I mean, look what an ape done with us. I mean, now we're, we're us. We're so inferior because we're running these primeval instincts. I mean, when we stop to think about the human race as in they're only human, as in they're incapable in some way. We start to think about the human race 
regardless of culture, regardless of color, regardless of sex, shape, size, it's irrelevant. What is relevant? Together, we can do so much more. If we want red shoes, why is the need there in the first place? Now, red shoes is in the business category. But if we stepped up a bit further, when they say 80% of people aren't happy in their job, happy is an emotional term, it's not a spiritual term. They don't say 80% of people aren't pr proud about what they do. That's just like, to me, pride is in spirit. They don't say 80% of people aren't motivated to do what they're paid to do. Motivation to me comes from the motor, the drive of the human, the biology. They don't say that in a sense that 80% of people aren't creative in what they do. That's like right brain. They don't say 80% of people are confused about what they do, which is left brain. So when we realize where the pain is, so is it emotional pain? They're not happy. Why aren't they happy? Because they're probably just being told what to do and they feel degraded, which means there's no pride or emphasis to do it. It's just a paycheck. Some feel that they're getting paid for like, and they're doing so much for their paycheck. So a bit like say a checkout person and they feel that well, I'm only getting paid 10 or $11 an hour. I feel I'm worth so much more, Well, they have to be worth so much more because they're priceless. But the money they right. trade time, that time they trade, the shop isn't just paying their wages, they're paying rates, they're paying like fuel, they're paying lighting, they're paying refrigeration, they're paying repairs, insurance. All these things have to come from that person's hourly wage. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. yeah, so the person has to earn way above what they actually are worth. Otherwise, Walmart and the like wouldn't make any money. I like how you mention that there's so much there as well. <laughs> we know we don't have time to go through all of it, but one thing that jumps out at me is that the, the statistic you threw out around happiness and not only as leaders, are we here to find solutions to these various problems, but to recognize that if you are just dictating and telling and not allowing your team, whoever's around you that you're leading, to experience, to create, to participate, may it be the right decisions or the wrong decisions, we're all creative beings. And if we don't feel that like we're creating or contributing, then there is an emptiness there. And it doesn't matter about the motivation, it may be money or status or responsibility, but it doesn't, change the fact of how you feel about what you're doing. And so I also think as a leader, understanding the fact that we're all creative beings and to recognize that each individual needs to be allowed to create in whatever that capacity is without judgment, knowing some ideas are going to be great and some solutions may not, but it's that experience that's going to take them to the mountaintop, as Martin Luther King said, that journey, like we all have to have a journey within each experience that we have here on earth as human beings. So that was, again, my little summary of oh, what you shared. And there's so much, there's so much to talk about around leadership, around problem solving, how to manifest the right and or demanifest the right solutions, how to build trust and credibility through integrity, how to find a balance of mind, body, soul, and spirit to truly give the best solution and ideas to a situation. There's so much. I love it. I love the insight. 
definitely going to have to bring you back, Lee. <laughs> and I do want to quickly get to the last couple segments of our show before we wrap up. So I'm going to give you the mic. You're going to play host for a little bit and you're going to ask me a question. And then we're going to just end with a fun question for my listeners. So you have the mic. What's the biggest change you'd like to make in the world today and why? Ooh, okay. Oh gosh, I want to answer that without taking too long. I would say, well, first and foremost, I realized that in order for me to truly make change, I have to go within and make sure that I am truly fulfilling my dreams, my joys, my loves. And through that, I can make the biggest impact because from being a child, I would just say going back to high school anyway, when a lot of us are challenged to make a decision on what we want to do for the rest of our lives, I knew I wanted to help individuals, more specifically children. And that path initially started off in medicine and eventually moved to fashion. And now it's a combination of things. But what has always stayed the same was to help an individual find a way to be happier. And initially I thought that was through counseling. Then I was led to discover the power of clothing and how that can internally impact how we feel about it ourselves. And then that grew into storytelling. And I feel that at the end of the day, our individual dreams, our wants, our desires, are what give us that motivation to wake up each and every day. And when we're not making those steps, no matter how small, closer to that dream, that desire, that want, then we feel less and less each day. And so if it's a book or a song or a movie or a piece of clothing or artwork, whatever it is, if that can get an individual one step closer to their dream, which then translates to happiness for them, then I've made a difference. And so my, my goal is to continue to use my love of art, fashion, storytelling, music, sound, use, to use my loves to help others be inspired to take that next step towards their dreams. Very good. That was a really good question. <laughs> I was like, really good answer. I don't know if I can answer that quickly. <laughs> We're running out of time. So thank you for that. That just also allowed me to kind of go within and say, hmm, I love that question. So I'm going to take the mic back and I'm going to go to a fun question from our listeners. And it's, this is random. Okay. The question is, which hobby would you like to spend more time doing and why? It is a good question. It's an awkward question for me because I don't have hobbies. <laughs> I have passions. So, um, mm. yeah. So I suppose my passion is where I spend my time as an individual is with my children. Mm. And uh, I suppose developing helping not developing them but helping them develop themselves so that's where i that i won't say it's my hobby but that's as near as i can get to it because i allocate my time on an individual basis as in the i and me and then there's the the we as in my wife and i and then there's the us as in our family so i'm very 
conscious of time because time to me is our life. Right, right. So I'm very conscious of what I do and my individual time is in the eye in me. I enjoy my family. I love my wife and want to spend and allocate adequate time. So when I see the actions or what some might call the benefits of my time, I see that one of my children, uh, Josh, he's 16. He plays for Connacht, which is like his county in rugby. He's also number one internationally for his age in karate. He fights for his country. Wow. Poppy, who's now 12. Yeah, she was 12 the other day. Poppy fights for her country, and she's number two internationally for her age and her class. Jake, what's Jake now? 13, and Jake fights for his country, number two for his age and his class. And Isaac, who's 19 yesterday, he's mm -hmm. number two internationally for his class and his age. Another daughter, Phoebe, she competes in horse riding. And it's not whether they're number two or number one, it's whether they're fulfilling their passion, whether they're finding what they enjoy, what they love, and whether they're I, making I, a, a connection. So that's where my hobbies would be in bringing the best out of them. Sorry. No, no, I, <laughs> I wanted to just jump in because I think it's really important for our listeners to know how many children you have and how that impacts your viewpoint as a leader as well. But then as you were sharing their names and their birthdays, I was trying to figure out how does he keep them all straight? Yeah. I have four and I get mixed up with their names. So can you please share with our audience how many children you have? I have 11 children. My oldest is 30 this year, next month. And my youngest Amazing. is eight. But if you ask them, if you asked any one of them, even the youngest, say William, who's eight, who's the boss of you? <laughs> yeah, he would say he was. And if you said, well, your dad's a big guy, surely your dad must be in charge. And he would say, no, I breathe for me. Love it. Yes. I mean, and that's where it starts, right? It starts at home and being mm. a leader within your family, teaching each and every one of your children that they are the leader of themselves and how powerful that is, right? When you know that you're responsible for your happiness, your destiny, your reality, that allows you to take the power back and allows you to truly create happiness if you are empowered to do so. And so I love that. And I thought that was so important because this day and age, not many individuals, especially leaders of our time have 11 children and have your viewpoint, your background, and just absolutely love, love the conversation we had today. And again, we'll have to bring you back because I think we just scratched the surface of some really impactful tips on leadership. So thank you again, Lee, for joining us. Thank you. For and I want to, yes, thank you so much. And I want to thank our listeners for staying with us today in another episode of Unleash Your Supernova, where we're here to share tips and wisdom to help you tap into those existing superpowers that you have. I'm Nova Lorraine, author again of Unleash Your Supernova, the book. So you haven't gotten it yet. Please go to your favorite bookstore, amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, whatever suits you and get the book. It will help and not just you, others. So gift it as well. Again, thank you so much for joining me for another episode. Thank you, Lee. And until next time, everyone. Ciao.